the uh, next festival on the list of Leviticus 23 is the festival of Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ingathering. The themes surrounding this festival are worship, praise, redemption, eschatology, thanksgiving, celebrating the harvest of righteousness in our lives. Sukkot. That's what Sukkot's all about. You know, around this time when I do studies on the festivals, or particularly around the time when uh, Sukkot lands on the calendar, a lot of people ask, Ariel, just what is a Sukkot anyway? Well, the word Sukkot is the plural form of the Hebrew word translated as booth, or tabernacle, or tent, or hut. It's a temporary structure. Its singular is Sukkah. Sukkot is a feminine uh, feminine plural word, and Sukkah is a feminine singular word. And based on the commandment to dwell in temporary booths for seven days, in chapter 23, verses 42 and 43, we can see why the feast is called Sukkot, because God says dwell in booths. Now, in Leviticus chapter 23, Hashem actually instructs the people to build Sukkot in memory of the temporary dwelling places that they had while they were wandering in the desert. In other words... This commandment to dwell or to build Sukkot is understood within the uh, permanent um, dwelling that they would eventually enjoy in the land of Israel. Of course, it's given while they're still in the desert, but God already knows that he's going to bring them into the land because that's what he promised. And God's going to make good on his promise. Of course, it's the Joshua generation that gets to go in, right? Uh, but um, So they get to go into the land, and as they dwell in a permanent home, for seven days... During the year, at this special time of year, they are to leave the permanence of their home and dwell in a temporary shelter known as a sukkah. To be sure, the most important temporary dwelling place during that time period was the tabernacle, at least when these instructions were given. The tabernacle was a temporary structure. It was one big giant tent, a.k.a. the tent of meeting. It was a giant tent, thus it was a giant sukkah in some ways. It was a, it was a, it was a temporary structure. Um, according to past history, once the people built a tabernacle uh, for Hashem, um, actually that should say, um, actually, you know what, the people built the tabernacle because God told them to build a tabernacle in Exodus 25 in Parashat Truma. He said, build it and I will dwell among you. Vashakanti Batocham. You build it and I will dwell among you. Vashakanti Bachotam. Among them. The people, not v'shachanti betoch, I will dwell in it, but rather betochem, I will dwell among them. He did indeed come to dwell among his people as he, as he said he would. And because he dwelt near them, his manifest glory, his shekhinah, was seen and experienced by his people. He promised that he would be there, and he allowed himself to be perceived by their eyes, by their by their senses, uh, because God's invisible, and so He broke into the visible and allowed them to not not necessarily see Him, but to catch a glimpse of His glory uh, by um, concentrating His glory into what we refer to as the Shekhinah, a word that's not actually found in the Torah. Shekhinah it means the manifest glory of God. Its root word is is Shachan, which means to dwell or or neighborly, to be close by. Yohanan, the immerser, um, gives us an even deeper understanding of this particular tabernacle. I want to read for you um, from John chapter 1, a very familiar passage. In John 1, verse 1, John says, um, and this is David Stern's version, 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then when we jump down to verse 14, John also says there that the Word became a human, human being and lived with us, and we saw his Shekhinah. Okay? Um, most translations will say we saw his glory um, or something to that effect. Um, I want to read for you that verse out of Hebrew, or I mean in the Hebrew. I've, I just happen to have an, an apostolic scriptures in the Hebrew, um, translated into Hebrew from the Greek. And John 1 1, which read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Hebrew says, Bereshit haya hadavar, vahadavar haya im haelohim, veelohim haya hadavar. And then um, in verse 14, when it says, The Word became a human being and lived with us, and we saw Shekhinahs. We saw Shekhinah. Hadavar nihya basar vashachan batochinu. Now, the reason I read that in the Hebrew, Hadavar nihya, I'm sorry, Hadavar nihya basar, the word became basar, flesh, vashachan batochinu, and dwelt, shachan, dwelt, batochinu, amongst us or within us. The Word became flesh and dwelt with us, is how it's translated. He lived with us. He dwelled with us. The same word, v'shachan um, batochinu, reminds me, if I turn backwards in this Hebrew Bible of mine, to Exodus chapter 25 in Parashat uh, um, uh, where Hashem tells Moshe, down in, let's see, verse 8. Um, uh, in verse 8 he says, Va'asu li mikdash v'shachanti batocham. Let me translate that for you. Let me turn in my English version here. Um, Exodus 25, verse 9. says, You are to make it according to everything I show you. I'm sorry. Verse 8 they are to make me a sanctuary so that I may live among them. Va'asuli mikdash v'shachanti b'tocham. Now that phrase, v'shachanti b'tocham, and I shall dwell among them, reminds me of the John passage where speaking of the word, it says, v'shachan b'tochinu. You can even hear the similarities, v'shachan b'tochinu in John and um Vashachanti uh, and so it's fascinating that as we do our study on this festival of Sukkot, that John would choose when speaking of Yeshua in John chapter one, there in verse fourteen, he he literally says that he tabernacled with us, he dwelt among us. The Greek word that he chooses, skenao, uh, if I'm correct, without looking it up, skenao um, is the Greek verb that literally means he pitched his tent with us. He tented with us. He tabernacled with us. Because there are other Greek words that John could have chosen if he just simply wanted to say that Yeshua lived with us. But what John is emphatically drawing an allusion to is the fact that Yeshua is the tabernacle of God himself. So, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me go back to the commentary. We're on page 11. The Word became a human being and lived with us, and we saw his Shekhinah, verse, verse 14 of John chapter 1. This immediately brings to memory the indwelling, manifested glory present in the earthly tabernacle, just like I spoke about. But the tabernacle 
when John was writing, had long since been replaced by a more permanent temple structure. Moreover, the Shekhinah of Hashem is reported to have been fully displayed in the person of Yeshua. You can read Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 to see where Paul makes that allusion. The Feast of Sukkot is a holy, conv- a holy convocation that speaks of corporate involvement. Okay? God says, you, Israel, build booths. Of course, today this command is more fully actualized when you're living in the land, according to the rabbis. But we still, boots, we still build sukkahs, or sukkot, here in the diaspora, the, uh, the galut, wherever you're, even if you're outside the land. But to build a sukkah and live outside, uh, the rabbis say, is, um, is something that uh, is uh, reserved for the land. And so what the rabbis at least are seeing, and I'm agreeing with them is this, is that Sukkot is a corporate festival. God designed it to be something that all of us would get together and be involved in. Is there still some future dwelling with men? When God set up his tabernacle slash temple, he did not do it off in some secluded place where no one could reach him. It was quite the contrary. He said Moses put it together and pitch it in such a way so that I'm right in the middle of everyone else. That's where I want to be speaks of corporateness. God desires to be with his people. He doesn't, be away, it doesn't want to be away from us. He wants to be with us. It's not this whole rugged individualism and, and exclusivity. Rather, it's the contrary. God wants corporateness. He wants to bring his people together. God wants to dwell with us. And so, what is Hashem waiting for, you might ask? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he just come and dwell with us? Well, what does our prophetic scripture from Jeremiah for this point say? In Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, we read these words, quote, I will be their God and they will be my people. Notice the corporate language being used there, the, um, the, the pronouns in the uh, plural. I will be their God and they will be my people. So God is consistent in his intentions. He does want to dwell with us, but not just individually. He wants to dwell with us corporately. Where is God's sukkah today? If his sukkah in the time period of the Tanakh was the tabernacle, and there's every reason to believe that it was. And if his sukkah in the time period of, of, uh, of the first century was the temple, and there's every reason to believe it was, where is his sukkah today? Well, Romans 11, 25, and 26 begin to hint of a future time when all Israel shall know the salvation of their God once and for all. And to that I say, Baruch Hashem, may that day come soon. So tied up within that future redemption because the Romans passage is in the future, is the concept that Hashem started back with way in the days of the Tanakh. And what was that? Exodus 25, verse 8. I'll read it again. Quote, I will dwell among them. From the prophetic book of Revelation, we learn that there will be a day when the final plan of Hashem will be fully realized among men. What I mean is this. For those of you who are listening and you, and you heard me ask the question, where is his sukkah today? And you were prone to respond, well, his sukkah is within us. Because Jesus dwells within us and because of Yeshua's dwelling within us, God dwells within us. I'm not negating that fact. This is true. God dwells within each and every one of us who name the name of Yeshua. That's true. However, we still lack the corporate promise that is spoken about in Romans and eventually in Revelation. There is a, a hint of a corporate aspect, there's, a, there's an aspect of this promise that Jeremiah spoke about in Jeremiah 31 there that touches all of Israel. And we haven't seen that yet. So even though we've got the down payment of God living within us right now, 
we still don't see all of Israel walking in this obedience. From Revelation, we learn that there will be a day when the final plan of Hashem will be fully realized among men. And of course, this includes the Jews. Read chapter 21, verse 3 of um, Revelation with me, okay? Quote, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, that this is John speaking, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. End quote. That's from the New International Version. Notice how John mentions now the dwelling of God is with men. He's speaking as if something has been finally actualized. You know, as if something has been waiting to be actualized or realized. John is catching a glimpse of this this final fulfillment in the future. God, John is being seen, uh, is being shown a vision of the future days, the end days, the achetayimim, the last days, in which I believe we're fastly approaching. And in his vision... Yeshua shows him that God will make his abode with mankind once again. And so, you could say that even though we have Yeshua today, and we do have the fullness of God dwelling with us, corporately there is still something missing. So, based on that, what I'm trying to get us to see is that even though we have Sukkot today, Sukkot, the festival itself, is a future yet to be fully actualized festival. The spring, uh, the fall festival, the spring festivals, I'm sorry, were actualized in their fullness when Yeshua came the first time. The festival of Pentecost, or Shavuot, was actualized when the Ruach HaKodesh was poured out in Acts chapter 2. However, the final three festivals, um, Yom Truah, uh, Sukkot, and Yom, I'm sorry, Yom Truah, um, uh, Yom Kippur, and then uh, Sukkot, they have yet to receive a final fulfillment. There are glimpses of their fulfillment. But the fullness of what those festivals point to is still yet future. And the key to understanding what I'm teaching you today is to keep your eyes on Israel because they are the key to understanding the festivals. So, this overview of the festivals as we draw this second um, part of the uh, commentary to a close. The overview of the festivals hopefully provided some of the biblical, historical framework to which we can apply the messianic fulfillment of each and every feast. Ultimately as I've written the commentary and made the podcast, it's my intent to invite each one of you listening, if you've not already done so, to consider taking Hashem up on His offer of divine permission to participate each year in His feasts. To be sure, there are a great number of Jewish people who don't give a whiff about God and His feasts. And you know what? My heart hurts for them. That they would disregard God's clear words of instructions as given at the hand of Moshe and is outlined right here in the book of Leviticus. But for those of you who name the name of Yeshua and espouse faith in God but don't keep his festivals, well then what's your excuse? I mean the Jewish people who don't believe in God, I can understand their excuse. But those of you who believe in Yeshua but aren't keeping the festivals... What's your excuse? I hope that after reading my commentary that I've piqued your curiosity. Shomer mitzvot, which in Hebrew we say Torah observance, or uh, um, observing the commandments, or or guarding the commandments. The word uh, shomer means to guard. Shomer mitzvot, guarding the commandments. It's a wonderful way to walk out the reality of the newness of life that's found only in union with Yeshua Hamashiach. What I'm saying is this, even Jewish people who do keep the feast but don't believe in Yeshua, 
they're not seeing the full picture because the festivals point to Yeshua. And if you've not matriculated to faith in Yeshua as a Jew, then you're only seeing half the picture. A godly desire to be submissive to the Torah as a Jew or as a Christian, it doesn't matter, is evidence of the Holy Spirit's activity of what? Putting the Torah of Hashem within you and writing it on your heart, a.k.a. Jeremiah 31-33 and Hebrews 8-10. If you have a desire to walk into the Torah, that's God's Spirit doing that work in you. You should be glad, be very happy that you are being drawn to the Jewish root that supports you if you're a non-Jew. The reason you're drawn to the Jewish root, the reason you're drawn to things Hebraic, is because the Holy Spirit is drawing you back to the ancient paths. The last verse of chapter 23 reads appropriately, Thus Moshe announced to the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai. The Hebrew says, Ve'idaber Moshe et Moadei Adonai el b'nei Yisrael. The reason I bring in this last verse of chapter 23 is to show how it is identical to the information that was given in the very first part of Leviticus chapter 23. Thus, we have bookends. Um, we have the verse, first um, few verses of chapter 23 telling us, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelite people, and say to them, These are my fixed times, the fixed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as sacred occasions. These are God's festivals. These are not man's festivals. These are God's festivals. And the way the chapter opens is the same way the chapter ends. These are God's festivals, and thus Moshe announced to the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai. This next section, I'm going to move into chapter 24, and uh, before I close out the commentary, I want to look at an issue that is brought up in certain Christian and slash uh, Jewish circles from time to time because of the language that is used in the passage. This next section is entitled, An Eye for an Eye. I want to briefly share some Talmudic quotes that revolve, uh, that revolve around an issue found in chapter 24, verses 17 through 20, uh, 22. Let me read the, the section first. And then we'll see what the Chazal, the sages, had to say about it. Reading from the NAS, New American Standard Version, uh, Leviticus 24:17-23, I'm sorry, through 22 reads this way: quote, "And if a man take the life takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. And the one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. And if a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye." tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so shall it be inflicted on him. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you, it shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. End quote. Having this verse before us now, let's begin to exegete it. What I want to start with is the thoughts of the sages of antiquity. They had differing opinions as to the exact meanings behind these verses. And, um, and that's okay. The essence of Jewish study is to disagree. Uh, I say that a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. And so from our Talmudic extract, let's, take, uh, uh, let's lift a quote, and this time it's going to be lengthy. 
from uh, tractate Bhavakama. Okay, the the uh, um, tractate um, is lengthy, uh, and it, of course it starts out with the Mishnah, just like any good uh, Masechet would. We read from the Mishnah, and then we answer up with questions from the Gemara. The Mishnah states, "One who wounds his neighbor is liable to pay to pay the following five things: viz, damage, pain, healing, loss of time, and disgrace." And then they go on to enumerate those five, or they go on to elaborate on them. Damage. If he blinds one's eye, cuts off his hand, and breaks it or breaks his leg, the injured person is considered as if he were a slave sold in the market, and he is appraised at his former and his present value. Then they move on. Pain. If he burns him with a spit or with a nail, or even if only on the nail of his hand or foot, where it produces no wound, he is appraised how much a man his equal would take to suffer such pain. Moving on. Healing. If he caused him bodily injury, injury, he must heal him. If pus collected by reason of the wound, he must cause him to be healed. If, however, not by reason of the wound, he is free. If the wound heals up and breaks out again, even several times, he must cause it to be healed. If, however, it, it once heals up thoroughly, he is no more obligated, uh, I'm sorry, obliged to heal it. And then finally, loss of time. The injured person is considered as if B were uh, as if B were a watchman of a pumpkin field, as he was already paid the value of his hand or foot. The disgrace is appraised with consideration of the station and rank of the one who causes as well as the one who suffers it. Okay, now that's the Mishnah. The Gemara comes along and generally asks further questions of the Mishnah. So now let's read the Gemara. And in learning, uh, reading the Gemara, we're going to run into a... Um, a baraita from here. A baraita is an ex- is an external an external mishnah, something that was really not included in the mission the first time. But uh, let's read that, okay? The Gemara says, "Why so?" Now again, the Gemara usually starts out with a question, questions the um, the rulings of the mission. The mishnah is kind of like laying down the the halakha, and then the Gemara comes along and reasons through the halakha by asking various questions so as to make sure that we've got the right uh, answers um, to the halakha. So the Gemara asks, why Why so? Perhaps it is to be taken literally for the scripture reads, eye for eye. I mean, it does read that way, right? Is that perhaps maybe the best way to understand it? it uh, one eye for an eye? Um, this cannot enter the mind, the Gemara answers itself. This cannot enter the mind as we have learned in the following um, Baraita. And, and uh, this time again, uh, a Baraita since I'm, I'm bringing them up. And uh, let me just pull up my dictionary and give you a dictionary definition. Someone asked me this earlier this week after I spoke about it in a few commentaries ago. I, I was using the term bereta. I apologize. It's, it's bereta. I was mispronouncing it. A, um, a bereta is an external mishnah. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a halakha that, is, um, that has come along at a later date. Um, and, it's, and, and because we're writing the Talmud the way we're writing it, it gets inserted usually around the Gemara. At any rate, um, as we have learned in the following Baraita, let lest one say if he blinds one's eye or cuts off one's hand that the same should be done unto him. Therefore it is written in Leviticus, quote, And he that killeth a beast shall make restitution for it, and he that killeth a man, etc. As in the case of a beast, only the value is paid so also in the case of a man. 
And lest one say, Does not the scripture read in Numbers, quote, Moreover, ye shall take no redemption for the person of a murderer who is guilty of death, end quote. You may say that from this verse, it, this very verse, it may be inferred that no redemption money is to be taken for a murderer, but redemption money is to be taken for one who destroyed such members of the body as, as cannot grow again, such as an eye. Okay? Reading down into the Gemara, we read, quote, We have learned in a Boreta, I'm sorry, a Boreta, uh, Rabbi Simeon uh, B. Johi said, Eye for eye means its value. Um, when you say its value... Perhaps it means literally? Nay, for what should be done when a blind man blinds another, etc.? How should be fulfilled the commandment, eye for eye? And lest one should say that such a case is an exception, therefore the scripture reads in Leviticus, quote, One manner of judicial law shall ye have, end quote, from which it is to be inferred that it means a law which can be applied alike to all human cases. Again, the, um, the mission on the Gemara are simply trying to explain that the literal impact of the verse, eye for eye, is not the way it should be read. It should be read and should be understood. God is not interested in one man plucking out the eye of another man because the first man lost his eye. In the school of Rabbi Ishmael, it goes on to say, it was taught, the scripture reads, so should it be given unto him. And by given is meant a thing which is given from hand to hand. If so, how are the preceding words in the same verse to be explained? Quote, in the manner he should give a bodily defect, etc. Hence the word give is also used for such a thing as is not given from hand to hand. It may thus be explained, quote, the, rabbi, uh, I'm sorry, the school of Rabbi Ishmael deduce uh, it from a superflu superfluous verse, thus let us see. It reads already in the preceding verse, quote, and if a man cause a bodily defect in his neighbor, as he hath done, so shall it be done unto him. End quote. Why then the repetition in verse 20, they ask? The answer they give, to indicate that it means money. And then they ask another question, but still the above stated opinion as to the use of the word give in the beginning of the verse remains. And then they answer their question. Because at the end of the verse, the scripture desired to use a term from which it should be deduced that it means money. It used the same expression also here. And then finally, the Gemara tells us that the school of Rabbi Hia deduced it from the following. The scripture reads in Deuteronomy, quote, hand for hand, end quote. That means something that can be passed from hand to hand, in essence, money. Okay. Um, again, I, I bring these Talmudic quotes in for us so we can understand that I believe often the sages used very good practical sense when it came to interpreting a verse and and applying it to the community. I do not see the logic in God commanding one man to pluck out the eye of another man who just had his eye already plucked out by accident from the first man. I don't see that God is asking for a literal eye for an eye or a literal tooth for a tooth. What good would it serve? In, in fact, I can tell you right now, if I knocked out Pastor Mark's tooth by accident, I don't want to give him my tooth. And I don't think he wants my tooth. What what's my to what good is my tooth gonna do in his mouth? His bloody mouth, right? I knocked his tooth out by accident, and now he says, Okay, RL, you better break your tooth out because it, the Torah says tooth for tooth. I don't think that's what God is was was hinting at. Um at least not commanding me to give that 
that uh, bodily member to the person that I, I accidentally um, damaged in the, in the in the fight or, or whatever you know the the scuffle or whatever. And so the rabbis are very wise, not always, but in this case they're pretty wise in turning this into a halakhic ruling involving monetary compensation. I think it's very smart. Let's continue reading. Um, the opinions of the sages of, of, of days gone by. Well-respected Torah scholar Nechama Leibovitz adds her comments on how the Chazal wrestled with the intended meaning behind this Levitical passage. Now, they really did wrestle with it. They, they, they asked themselves, what exactly is God trying to tell us? Eventually, they favored a monetary interpretation because they did ask, what does God mean? Let's read uh, Leibovitz's comments. Quote, Few are the verses from the Bible which have been so frequently and widely misunderstood by Jew and non-Jew, as in verse twenty, in chapter 24, verse 20, from which our title is taken. Of course, this is Parashat um, Emor that we're talking about. This misconception has transformed our text into a symbol, into a symbol, the embodiment of vengeance at its cruelest level. One wishes to express his, opi- his opposition to forgiveness, concession, and compensation. Instead, insisted instead on, on his pound of flesh, on retaliation of the most brutal and painful kind, resorts to the phrase eye for eye, a formula which conjures up a vision of hacked limbs and gouged eyes. Even he who is familiar with the traditional rabbinical interpretation of our text, quote, eye for eye, in essence, monetary compensation, does not rule out the possibility of this being merely an apologetical explanation, a later toning down of ancient barbarity, humanization of the severity of the Torah by subsequent generations. But this is not the case, she goes on to say. On the contrary, our sages and commentators adduced many and varied proofs indicating that the plain sense of the text can be no other than monetary compensation. End quote. I lifted that um, statement uh, from um, from the footnote number four www.jafi.org.org.il, uh, and they have an excellent resource of Nachama Leibovitz's commentaries that I recommend that you go look at. Now, um, since we are aware within Judaic circles that the Pharisaic interpretation was typically at odds with the Sadducean interpretation, what we ended up with is that the school of rabbinic Judaism that was born in Yavne in 200 CE gave rise to a um, a, a competitive school of thought as well uh, that we today affectionately call the Karaites. And the Karaites are the, um, as I understand them, to be the uh, descendants of the Sadducean tradition. Not descendants of the Sadducees themselves directly, but what I mean by their tradition is this. The Pharisees of Yeshua's day held to a um, they held to the written law, that is to say, Torah um, Shabbatav, that the Torah that was written down by Moshe, and they also held to the oral tradition, Torah Shabbatalpei, the Torah from the mouth. The Pharisees held to both traditions. Thus, Rabbinic Judaism, which is the children of the Pharisees, also has oral tradition today, viz. Talmud. However, by comparison, the Sadducean tradition rejected any oral tradition. They held to only a written Torah, Torah Shabbatav. And as a result, the children of the Sadducees today, uh, or at least of that tradition, the Karaites, um, hold to a written-only tradition. Thus, the Karaites reject 
the oral tradition. So by contrast, the uh, Karaite, some people say Karaite, the Karaite attacked the rabbinic interpretation on two accounts. First, from the wording of the text. The Gaon, the, the, and that's a reference to the Gaon of Vilna. Um, that, that's his title, by the way. That's not his name. The Gaon of Vilna demonstrated that the two phrases do not necessarily bear out the Karaite interpretation. Uh, Beno Jacob notes that the case of Adoni Bezek, as um, I have done so, as I have done, as God required, requ- I'm sorry, this is the case of Beno Jacob, uh, um, as I have done, so God has requited me, at Judges 1.7, is no proof to the contrary, for there he uses a different verb in each clause of the phrase and is therefore not comparable to our verse. In other words, the Karaites are just going to look at the verses and say, no, there's different language found in each passage, therefore monetary um, uh, monetary uh, 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 recompense cannot be the uh, interpretation. The proof Again, this is a Karaite position. The proof from Samson is the clearest indication that the phraseology, when uh, when it implies an equivalent or analogous um, but not identical punishment. Again, from Bavakama is what they say. Quote, uh, 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 now again, this is not a Karaite quote because the Karaites would not quote from the Talmud. But what we're doing in our comparison of uh, the two schools of thought, Karaite versus Rabbinic. Um, I'm going to quote from Baba Kama again um, so that we can see whether or not um, uh, the, uh, the Talmud is, is, is giving us a valid reason for supposing that the halakha should be monetary. Eye for eye, Rav Sa'eda said, we cannot take this text literally. For if a man deprived his fellow of a third of his normal eyesight by his blow, how can the retaliatory, retaliatory blow be so calculated as to have the same results, neither more nor less, nor blinding him completely? Now that, let me just pause and say, that is solid logic. That's wisdom. If I don't take Mark's eye out completely, in my little analogy of, of my scuffle with Pastor Mark, I hope Pastor Mark gets to listen to these, commenta- these podcasts someday so he can... Um, I know he's fairly busy right now, which is what I mean by my statement, but someday I hope he gets to listen so he can laugh along with me. If I don't take Mark's eye out completely, let's just say I blind him partially, then um, the Rav there is trying to explain to us, how am I supposed to allow Mark to hit me in such a way as to only partially blind me? It's, it's very wise logic. Let's keep reading in the uh, from Bavakama. Such an exact reproduction of the effects is even more difficult in the case of a wound or bruise, which, if in a dangerous spot, might result in death. The very idea cannot be tolerated. Ben Zuta, a Karaite, retorted. Now, it's interesting that the Pharisees, in their um, tradition of recording the Mishnahs and the Talmuds, they speak about their adversaries, and the Karaites, of course, are their adversarial position. And so, woe to the man who's of whom only the only things that are written are written by his adversaries, all right? Ben Zuta is a Karaite, and he retorted, but surely it is explicitly written in Leviticus 24.20, as he has maimed a man, so shall it be rendered to him. To which the Gaon of Vilna answered, the word, I'm sorry, the Gaon, uh, I keep adding Vilna there, but I apologize, it simply says Gaon. The Gaon answered, the, the word on, implying so shall be punished, be imposed upon him. Been um, the word on, implying so shall punishment be imposed upon him. Uh, ben Zuta, the Karaite, retorted, As he did, so shall be done to him. The Gaon replied, We have in the case of Samson and Judges, 
As they did to me, so I did to them. And Samson did not take their wives and give them to others, as they'd done to him. If you recall, if you go back and read the story of Shimshon, um, they did take uh, their wives and give them to others, as, as they'd done to him. But Samson only punished them. Ben Zuda retorted, What if the attacker was a poor man? What would be his punishment? The Gaon replied, What if a blind man blinded one with normal eyesight? What should be done to him? <laughs> the logic is impeccable. The poor man can become rich and pay. Only the blind man can never pay for what he did. End quote. Now, I'm lifting my Talmudic quotes from my CD-ROM version of Jacob Neusner's The Babylonian Talmud, um, which was published by Hendrickson Publishers in 2005. So, what we're getting to see, or we're beginning to understand as we um, deal with this particular topic of how to understand the passage eye for eye, is that the Karaite then forsook the argument from the wording of the text and attacked the rabbinical interpretation from the point of view of feasibility of its implementation. But here, Ben Zuda, the Karaite, evidently did not realize that by doing so, he was advancing the objection that could be raised against all judicial fines. Just as he asked, remember when he asked, what if the attacker is a poor man? So he could have asked, what if any defendant on whom a fine was imposed was a poor man? You see, he failed to exercise proper logic, Ben Zuta did, uh, in his round of questioning. He thus played into Rabbi Sa'adya's hands by showing him that the same flaw in execution that could be pointed out in the monetary interpretation could be objected in the literal one. In essence, bringing Rabbi um, Shimon Be'yuchai's argument. In other words, he, uh, he, he, in the end, the Karaite lost. I'm not saying that the Karaites are completely in error in everything that they do. Um, I simply mean this. Um, if we look at the verse and we, and, we, and we allow the logic of the verse to be implemented the way that the Pharisaic school has um, worked through the passage, then I think you'll agree in the wisdom in um, uh, uh, the wisdom in uh, uh, deciding on the monetary. Let's just draw some conclusions, because by this point in time, we could go on and on, but I'm not here to teach Talmud. This last section on, on the uh, middle of page 15 is entitled, Conclusions. In the conclusions to the eye-for-eye eye passage, we must also remember that the, that the apostolic scriptures bring some information to the table regarding this particular mitzvah. So, in my conclusions, let's first quote from my own commentary to Parashat Mishpatim, in which I decided to bring in the uh, the uh, the material that the apostolic scriptures uh, afford us. Which I might add, by the way, the um, Pharisaic school, the rabbinic Jews, do not um, examine. And to, in my opinion, that becomes part of their ultimate weakness in um, in expounding on the Torah itself. How can they expect to explain the Torah when corporately they choose to reject the giver of the Torah, namely Yeshua? Alright, from Parashat Mishpatim, quote, Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 27, speak about restitution in the event of accidental injury. I bring this out because in Exodus we already see this, this um, topic discussed. And now we're reading it again in Leviticus. We are familiar with the saying, quote, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, end quote. We remember that our Lord Yeshua made a comment about this in the Brit Chadashah, in the Apostolic Scriptures, in the book of Matit Yahu 5, 38 through 42. 
we often feel, and when I say we here, I'm speaking generally as a Christian. And again, it's just common sense because A, the rabbinic Jews of today don't study the New Testament, and B, most Christians do. So it's logical when I say that um, we often feel that his comments, and that his is Yeshua. I'm speaking of, um, of mainstream Christians. We often feel that his comments reflect the right enacted by this particular Torah passage to go out and take revenge on the individual who took our eye or our tooth. In other words, um, as humans, we sometimes feel that the Torah is commanding that we take an eye for an eye. All right? In Yeshua's estimation, we suppose that revenge is not the correct course of action and instead we should seek to forgive our brother. In other words, we just seek to forgive him and we don't seek to recomp- uh, uh, compensate him in any way, shape, or form. But in actuality, these verses of our current parasha establish justice in such a situation. For instance, if indeed your brother accidentally or maliciously takes your eye or your tooth, and again, I recognize that these are symbols of your precious commodities because the word eye and the word tooth there could really be a stand-in as a general principle of something greater. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that it's an eye uh, that he takes. Let's say your brother takes um, your ox or your donkey or something other than that. So eye for eye doesn't always necessarily mean eye. And now I'm using the third rule of Hillel. Binyan av mikatuv echad, building up of a family from a single text in which a principle is found in several passages, such as the ones we're reading, and a consideration found in one of them applies to all. So, um, this rule, uh, uh, building up a family from a single text, what we do is we basically find one or two texts that give us the general principle, and then from there we can rule, um, we can make other. Um, determinations, and and I believe that's what's happening here. Um, we we in, in Yeshua's estimation, we suppose revenge is not the course of action. Um, let's say our brother does indeed accidentally or maliciously take our eye, then the ruling says that you are the the injured party are entitled to an equal share of recompense, but not more. That's what I see Yeshua teaching. Um, the ruling then sets the order so that greed and unforgiveness don't become rife in the community. So let me let me say this. Uh, let's say in my little wrestling wrestling match with Mark, let's say I accidentally poke out his eye. That doesn't give Mark the right to take out both my eyes and my entire ma- uh, row of teeth as well, because the Torah says eye for eye, not eyes for eye. It limits what he can take from me. It has to be um, um, a measure for measure, is what we're asking. The ruling sets the order so that greed and unforgiveness don't get out of hand. But Yeshua, realizing that the person wronged is owed an eye or a tooth for his compensation, challenges his audience to seek forgiveness instead of compensation. In other words, Yeshua cuts to the heart of the Torah and says, You know what? Accidents happen. And, and, and bad things happen to good people, I might add. And so, seek forgiveness even in the case where it may not have been a complete accident. Because you know what? If you give me just a little bit of time, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to hurt you. I don't do it purposefully. 
I seek to reach out and love you as my fellow community member, but give it a little bit of time. And whether accidentally or because I'm just not walking right with God at that time, at that moment, I'm going to hurt my fellow community member. And so Yeshua challenges the injured party to say, you know what, I forgive you. He does not contradict the Torah here, um, a, a, a tradition that we have um, often entertained, a notion that we have taught uh, from time to time. Yeshua cannot be guilty of contradicting the Torah. Rather, he establishes its true intent. Concluding, I like to say that if the rabbis are right that money is the compensation, then it can be observed that the one who pays compensation for the loss of sight does not make good the damage as does not make good uh, the damage as one who damages his fellow goods. The money only serves to make good the monetary damage involved in the loss of an eye or a hand, but the actual loss of the eye can never be made good, is my point. In other words, um, injury to another human being is a crime that cannot be made good by ransom or monetary payment. If we hurt someone, whether it's physically or spiritually... Money cannot simply be the payment, is what I'm trying to say. What, in other words, I'm trying to give a, um, a limitation to the ruling that the rabbis were imposing. They weren't simply saying that money is the answer to all the problems. Far from it. If you injure your brother, seek his healing, both spiritually as well as physically. Okay, And money is just one part of that uh, healing process. This is the reason why the Torah did not use the expression, he shall pay for his eye, end quote. This emerges even more clearly from the verse of our parasha that we cited at the beginning of this section from Leviticus. After the punishment for, mortali- for mortally injuring a man or a beast is stated in, in, in uh, verse 17 through 18, After this is stated comes the punishment of the one who causes bodily injury to which the punishment for the one who injures a beast is not juxtaposed. I want you to see that. For in the case of man, the difference between mortal injury, which is murder, and maiming is qualitative. Death and money. Whereas in the case of beast, there is merely a quantitative difference between killing it and injuring it, greater or lesser compensation according to the injury. Do you see the differences there? So, as we study the Torah, we need to be aware of these careful distinguish, uh, these careful distinctions that God is giving to us. And it really does behoove us to practice our Torah observance in the presence of a community where the safety of leaders um, it, it, it stands to safeguard the, the very well-being of the community. Trying to come up with the uh, proper interpretations of these rulings on our own was not God's design. When God gave us the Torah, He envisioned that we should establish leaders for the communities and that the leaders should bear the responsibility of, of working through the difficult um, details of passages like the ones that we're reading. It's because the leaders are accountable for the things that they hand down uh, and for the, the mishpatim, the, the, the judgments that they pass on to successive generations. To be sure, that's why we are wise in listening to um, the leaders of our own community. And with that, our parasha concludes by contrasting both of these two um, uh, situations. Leviticus 24.12 reads like this, quote, He who kills an animal is to make restitution, 
But he who kills another person is to be put to death. Notice the difference. If he kills an animal, he doesn't get killed. But if he kills a person, he's to lose his life. Conversely, um, now we understand how that when he doesn't kill a person, but he injures a person, he's to make restitution. See how that works? The verse appears superfluous. Uh, a repetition of the previous, unless we bear in mind that it wishes to impress upon us the difference between man's responsibility for his fellow go- for his fellow's goods. In other words, how am I responsible for my neighbor if I injure him and if I if, if I do damage to his property, and his responsibility for his fellow's life as a human being created in the image of God? It's one thing to take um, something from my fellow but not take his life. But it is an entirely different situation if I take another man's life. We understand the differences? I think we do today. All right, let's close. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai loheinu melech ha'olam asher natan lanu Torah temet vechaye alam natabatocheinu. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha'torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth, and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. And with that, I wish you a hearty Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com or visit our website at graftedin.com that's graftedin.com